From the Christian Research Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. We're on the air because truth matters and life matters more. On today's special edition of the Bible Answer Man, we pick up where we ended on our previous broadcast and present more of an episode of the Hank Unplugged podcast. Hank is talking with Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle and author of Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. Now let's join Hank Hanegraaff and Dr. Stephen Meyer in their conversation. Fred Hoyle, the great astrophysicist who was initially an ardent scientific atheist, was deeply shaken in his atheism by some of the fine-tuning parameters that he himself discovered and later adopted a kind of proto-theistic position. I had a chance to talk with him when I was a PhD student in Cambridge. He came to give a lecture. and By that time, he was very intrigued with the evidence of design and the fine-tuning and had been quoted as saying that a common-sense interpretation of the data we have suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics in order to make life possible. And this has been a common-sense interpretation, indeed, of the fine-tuning. The alternate view of that, the go-to atheistic explanation for that now, is something called the multiverse. And that's the idea that, yes, all these different parameters are exquisitely and extremely improbably finely tuned, but if we can posit the existence of enough other universes out there, I like to say a gabillion, not a technical term, but a (laughs) a whole bunch, then we can think of our universe as the lucky winner in a great cosmic lottery, where some universe with the right set of parameters would inevitably arise because of the great number of universes, and we just happen to be in the lucky one. But there are two problems with that. The first is that if all these other universes are causally disconnected from our own, then their mere existence does nothing to affect the probabilities of anything that occurs in our universe, including whatever processes work that set the fine-tuning parameters. So in virtue of that, multiverse proponents have proposed universe-generating mechanisms so that they can portray our universe as the lucky winner of a great lottery, where the generating mechanism is spitting out a whole bunch of different universes at periodic intervals. And that's where the ultimate rub comes in for the multiverse, because even in theory, those universe-generating mechanisms, some based on string theory, others based on something called inflationary cosmology, even in theory, those universe-generating mechanisms must themselves be exquisitely finely tuned in order to produce new universes. And so even if you accept the multiverse hypothesis, the problem of fine-tuning is just pushed back one generation. You still have prior unexplained fine-tuning in the universe-generating mechanisms, and so you're right back where you started with an evidence that we know from experience, namely fine-tuning, is indicative of prior design, prior intelligent design. So we're talking about the three key scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. We talked about cosmology, We talked about evidence from physics. The third is evidence from biology, which seems to establish that since the beginning, large amounts of new functional genetic information have arisen in our biosphere, and that makes new forms of life possible, and vicariously, it implies the activity of a designing intelligence. 
Yes, an activity well after the beginning of the universe. Our best estimates are that life arose on the planet about 3.85 billion years ago, and then we've had episodes of bursts of biological innovation at different points along the timeline from there forward in events like the Cambrian explosion or the mammalian radiation or the angiosperm big bloom or the origin of human beings. One of the great discoveries of modern biology is that if the evolutionary process is to build new forms of life, it must generate vast amounts of new information. Just as in our computer world, if you want to give your computer a new function, you've got to provide new code. In the biological realm, the building of new biological form and structure, novelty, requires new information. And this first, this insight is a consequence of the great discoveries that occurred in the 1950s and 60s in a period of time that was now historians of science called the molecular biological revolution. Watson and Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule in 1953. In 1957, Crick formulates something he calls the sequence hypothesis, the idea that along the interior of the twisting double helix that we know of from high school biology, the, the DNA molecule, along the interior of that molecule, there are chemical subunits called bases that are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or like the zeros and ones in a section of software, the digital characters in this section of software, which is to say it is not the physical properties of those chemical subunits that give DNA its function, but rather their arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention now known as the genetic code that enables the DNA to store instructions for producing the proteins and protein machines that keep cells alive. And so this discovery of the information-bearing properties of DNA and the whole information storage, transmission, and processing system at work within the cell has created a profound impasse in both chemical evolutionary theory, but also, I would say, in biological evolutionary theory as well. Because undirected evolutionary mechanisms have proven incapable of explaining the origin of this informational system in the first place, and even the origin of the amount of new information necessary to build, for example, a novel protein fold, which is the fundamental unit of innovation in biological evolution. And yet, on the other hand, we do know of a cause that produces functional digital information. In our uniform and repeated experience, in fact, there's only one known cause capable of producing that kind of information, and that is a mind. Our local hero out here in the Seattle area, Bill Gates, has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever devised. Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that the machine code of the genes, as he puts it, is uncannily computer-like. Leroy Hood, a famous biotechnologist, has simply described DNA as containing, quote, digital code. We know from experience that it takes a programmer to make a software program. We know more generally that whenever we find information, especially in a digital or an alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a computer program or the information that we're transmitting over the radio signal right now, that information always first originated in a mind. And therefore, the discovery of functional digital information at the foundation of life and even the simplest living cells points, I argue, to the activity of a designing mind and the origin and the history of life. I want to focus just for a moment on the title of your book, 
And think about just about every word of that title. It's not titled The God Hypothesis. It's titled Return of the God Hypothesis. And that seems to imply that there once was a viable scientific option. That that viable scientific option, the option of the God Hypothesis, was popular, then lost its popularity, and now is making a breakthrough once again. Exactly. Or at least should be, based on the evidence that we have in front of us, should be making a comeback. And I think it is. But let's start with the beginning of the story that's implied by the title. There is a period in the history of science that historians of science call the scientific revolution. That is a period of time in which scientists began to investigate nature in a very systematic way. And as a result of that, made many important breakthroughs in our understanding of biology, chemistry, astronomy, and physics. That period of time is typically dated as between 1500 and 1750. But now many historians say the roots of the scientific revolution go back even further into the late Catholic medieval period into the 1300s. And if you look at that period of time, you find that the innovators, both from the standpoint of methodology and from the standpoint of the application of new scientific methods, were devoutly religious people who held a Judeo-Christian or biblical worldview. And when you look at that worldview, it turns out that there are many things in a biblical or theistic worldview that are crucial to developing the kind of science that was developed. I already mentioned the presupposition of intelligibility, the idea that nature could be understood because it was made by a rational mind, namely God, who had made us in his image and granted us the same kind of rationality that he himself had and which was reflected in the order and design of the universe. Other theological propositions were equally important. The idea that God is a God of order and that there is an impressed order on the universe so that the concept of natural law became a very natural way of thinking about nature. One historian of science says the idea of the laws of nature was a juridical metaphor of theological origin, but also the idea that the laws of nature were the result of divine choice, and therefore that God made the universe in an orderly way, but he could have imposed a different kind of order on nature than he did. And so we couldn't deduce what the order of nature would be. We rather have to go out and look at nature, we observe it. Don't go away. In just a few moments, we'll rejoin Hank Hanegraaff's conversation with Dr. Stephen Meyer. Many intellectuals insist that science and belief in God are at war. In Return of the God Hypothesis, Stephen Meyer argues that theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent, intelligent, and active creator, best explains the evidence we have concerning our origins. Meyer provides an evidence-based answer to perhaps the ultimate mystery of the universe. The result? A stunning conclusion. The data support not only the existence of an intelligent designer of some kind, but the existence of a personal God. To receive your copy of Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's life-changing outreaches. 888-7000-CRI or visit us at equip.org. That's equip.org.
Many intellectuals insist that science and belief in God are at war. In Return of the God Hypothesis, Stephen Meyer argues that theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent, intelligent, and active creator, best explains the evidence we have concerning biological and cosmological origins. Previously, Meyer refrained from attempting to answer questions about who might have designed life. Now he provides an evidence-based answer to the ultimate mystery of the universe. The results? Meyer reveals a stunning conclusion. The data support not just the existence of an intelligent designer of some kind, but the existence of a personal God. To receive your copy of Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's life-changing outreaches, 888-7000-CRI, or visit us at equip.org. That's equip.org. Anyone who's been paying attention knows there's a war going on, not just on traditional morality, civility, and decency, but even more fundamentally on historic notions of truth. And the enemy isn't just the onslaught of fake news facilitated by a post-truth culture and turbocharged by growing legions of ideological spin doctors. No, the real enemies of truth range from postmodernist convictions that there is no objective truth to militant scientism that claims that only science can determine truth and religion is little more than primitive superstitions. But CRI support team members are not waving a white flag of surrender. They're holding the fort by undergirding every one of Christian Research Institute's mind-shaping and life-changing outreaches 24-7. To learn how you can make a difference and enjoy all the benefits of support team membership, simply visit equip.org. If you thought the pandemic was scary, it may actually pale in comparison to today's pandementia. We're talking about wokeism and its growing legions of followers who have defiantly and dangerously declared their independence from reality. That's right, for those infected by the woke virus, anytime their ideology encounters reality, ideology wins. To help halt the advance of this deadly social and mental disease, you'll want a copy of the special edition of the Christian Research Journal. In it, you'll feast on penetrating analyses and criticisms of one of the most dangerous ideologies in modern history, all written to help you grasp just how deranged this tyrannical movement actually is. To receive your copy, visit equip.org. That's equip.org or call 888-7000-CRI. That's 888-7000-CRI. Let's rejoin Bible Answer Man host Hank Hanegraaff and his guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer, in their conversation. Other theological propositions were equally important. The idea that God is a God of order and that there is an impressed order on the universe so that the concept of natural law became a very natural way of thinking about nature, but also the idea that the laws of nature were the result of divine choice and therefore that God made the universe in an orderly way, but he could have imposed a different kind of order on nature than he did. And so we couldn't deduce what the order of nature would be. We rather have to go out and look at nature, observe it. Robert Boyle said, it is not the job of the natural philosopher to discern what God must have done, but rather to go out and look and see what he actually did do. 
Now, this approach was in decided contrast to the Greek approach to the natural sciences, where the Greeks thought there was an inherent order in nature, but it was an order that was logically necessary and self-evident to anyone who reflected on it. And so this approach to science impeded the impulse to observe. And so there are many contributions from a Judeo-Christian worldview, from a biblical worldview that made what we call modern science possible. And I, I describe these in the first couple chapters of the book. But in addition to that, the early scientists who started to use these methods, Kepler, Boyle, Newton, also believed that they were seeing in nature evidence of design. In the general scolium to the Principia, the theological epilogue that Newton wrote to his great masterpiece about wherein he explicated the new universal law of gravity, he made an exquisite initial condition fine-tuning argument about the origin of the solar system. And he argued that this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, which he capitalized with a capital B. So right in the structure of his scientific work, he was making design arguments. He did the same in the optics, where he argued that the exquisite and intricate design of the eye not only by itself bespoke a prior designing intelligence, but it seemed to anticipate the properties of light in an uncanny way that provided further support for that inference. So the God hypothesis was part of the inspiration for science. It was a presupposition that gave rise to science, but it was also an active explanatory hypothesis that helped to explain some of the things the scientists were discovering. That began to change in the 19th century, as I mentioned already, with the rise of these different theories of origins that excluded God as an explanatory concept. But I think the argument of this book is that the big discoveries that have been made over the last hundred years certainly justify returning the God hypothesis to a place of primacy as an explanatory hypothesis, as well as a source of presuppositions that make science possible. You mentioned Isaac Newton, and you know he was a prodigious intellect by any standard. He discovered the laws of motion. He invented calculus. He constructed the first reflecting telescope, many other laudits that you could attribute to him. And his God hypothesis actually functioned as a hugely productive science starter. So I, I kind of get the idea reading Return of the God Hypothesis that you are fascinated by Isaac Newton. You mention him a lot in your talks and in your writings. Well, I do. And my first year in grad school in Cambridge, I did several papers on the debate over universal gravitation, which was fascinating because there I learned that Newton not only made arguments that could be categorized as natural theology, he not only argued from nature to the existence of God, he also had a profoundly biblical theology of nature. For him, the laws of nature were a mode of divine action. This was just a metaphor that we used to describe how God maintained the constancy of nature, the orderly concourse of nature. And he had a fascinating debate through an intermediary with the German philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Leibniz. Leibniz didn't like Newton's new theory of gravity because he thought that 
Newton had failed to provide a materialistic or mechanistic causal explanation for gravitational attraction. The previous view of gravity was that there was a, an invisible but material substance called ether that swirled around the sun and the planets, and it pushed the planets around the sun, sort of like dropping sticks in a vortex. But Newton got rid of the ether and instead simply described the force of gravitational attraction, and his equations implied that there was something at work called action at a distance. The moon is affecting the tides on planet Earth, we think, but the moon is not touching planet Earth. It doesn't move the water. It doesn't push the water. So what causes the pushing and the pulling? All explanations at this time were thought to require such pushing and pulling. So said what were called the mechanical philosophers, of which Leibniz was one. Newton said, I don't feign to know the cause. Hypothesis non fingo in the Latin, he said. I don't know the cause, but I can describe what happens mathematically. And Leibniz thought that since Newton was not positing a material cause for the origin of the universe, he must privately think that the actual cause of gravitational attraction was, as one of my Cambridge supervisors put it, constant spirit action. The, the orderly concourse of nature that we describe with our laws of nature is a consequence of God sustaining the universe by the word of his power, as it says in the book of Hebrews. And in fact, this is exactly what Newton thought. And he revealed this in a private letter that he wrote to a bishop named Bishop Bentley, who was preparing lectures on natural theology in 1691. And so Newton thought he saw evidence of God in nature. And he also had a kind of profound theology of nature where he understood that what we as scientists are doing in describing these regularities is nothing more than describing the constant spirit action of God in holding the universe together. And in fact, in the general scolium to the Principia, his theological epilogue to the great work, he has a passage that sounds almost like a direct paraphrase of Colossians 1, in him all things are held together. Hmm. One of the great contributions of your book is that you debunk the myth that science and religion are in fact at war. You have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson who bloviate that if you want to do good science, you have to throw off the shackles of religion. So again, he highlights this mythological tug of war between science and religion. And you're saying, in essence, that this is mythology. This is made up, that the two are not in conflict one with another. Well, this has certainly been not the dominant state of affairs in the relationship between science and religious belief, belief in God, theology, since the founding of modern science. There are, of course, tensions between certain scientific theories and theological propositions. I would say that Darwinian evolution, with its denial of actual design, and instead its affirmation only of the appearance or illusion of design, does place itself in direct opposition to clear theological teaching or theological propositions. Most Orthodox Jews and Christians believe that God acted in a specific and even discernible way to design the universe and design life. So it's not the case that there are never contradictions between specific scientific theories and theological ideas or theological beliefs, but rather that if you look at the whole sweep of the history of science, First of all, 
uh, Judeo-Christian ideas played a crucial role in the foundation and formation of the modern scientific enterprise. And then secondly, I would argue that our best current understanding of the evidence we have about, for example, biological and cosmological origins, among other subjects, does now perfectly harmonize with theological beliefs and provides support for those beliefs. There have been episodes in the history of science where there has been conflict or tension, but that, I would argue, has occurred when the scientific theories in question are actually questionable, like Darwinian evolution. So I think both in its initial formation and now at the present, I think there's a deep harmony between science and religious belief. And in fact, I think scientific discoveries support belief in the existence of God, thus my title, Return of the God Hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking when I ask you this question about people like Andrew Dixon White, he was the founder of Cornell University, and he would come up with these pseudoscientific statements, statements that really had no basis in fact, reality, or history. So, for example, he, in one of his books, decries the regrettable reality that the 200 years after Magellan had empirically proven that the Earth was round, that Christian fundamentalists persisted in perpetuating flat Earth mythology. But that, in itself, is mythology. It is it's it's myth. propaganda. It's a huge myth, Hank. It's now well established. The spherical nature of the Earth was well known in the Middle Ages and even before. We've run out of time for today's special edition of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Be sure to join us again next time when we'll continue Hank Hanegraaff's conversation with Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Our daily commitment here at the Christian Research Institute is to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints and equip believers to become true disciples of Jesus Christ. In appreciation for your vital gift to help strengthen and expand CRI's life-changing outreaches, Hank would like to send you Return of the God Hypothesis, three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. Call a resource consultant at 888-7000-CRI. That's 888-7000-CRI. Or visit our website, equip.org. That's equip.org. You can also write CRI at Post Office Box 8500, Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. The Bible Answer Man broadcast is funded by listeners like you. We're on the air because truth matters and life matters more. Many intellectuals insist that science and belief in God are at war. In Return of the God Hypothesis, Stephen Meyer argues that theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent, intelligent, and active creator, best explains the evidence we have concerning biological and cosmological origins. Previously, Meyer refrained from attempting to answer questions about who might have designed life. Now he provides an evidence-based answer to the ultimate mystery of the universe. The results? Meyer reveals a stunning conclusion. The data support not just the existence of an intelligent designer of some kind, but the existence of a personal God. 
To receive your copy of Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe, call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support the Christian Research Institute's life-changing outreaches, 888-7000-CRI, or visit us at equip.org. That's equip.org.